Welcome back, everybody. Brian Tuck here at Creator Confidential, the podcast for creators. We are in pop culture territory today again with a breakdown of chapter four of The Mandalorian, which is entitled Sanctuary. I'm joined by one of my great drummer pals from way, way back, David Below, who uh, hails from Detroit, Michigan, and super excited to add a new voice to the show today, a comedian and a very cool dude named Dan Bradley, who you are going to get to hear from in a little bit. And before we do that, just want to take care of a little business. And that is a simple request to like and subscribe to this show on whatever platform you may be listening to it on, whether it's SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, you name it. And, you know, if you like what you hear, give us a little help and please share this episode with a friend. It's very easy to do now on socials. And speaking of socials, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. The show's not hard to find. Looking forward to getting into some Star Wars territory. Here we go with our breakdown of Chapter 4 of The Mandalorian. Let's hit it. You're listening to Creator Confidential with attorney, author, and musician, Brian Tuck. Brian's legal practice is focused on arts and entertainment law, startups, nonprofits, and faith-based organizations. To learn more, visit tucklaw.com on the web. Creator Confidential starts now. Okay, so here we are. Mandalorian chapter four sanctuary with a recap. I almost want to say a quick recap, but I know this is not going to be quick. So everybody dig in. We are joined by rock and roll drummer extraordinaire, David (laughs) from Detroit, Michigan. And uh, we've got a new guy with us who I'm really psyched uh, that he's, he's able to join us comedian and global icon. That's how he told me to set it up. Dan Bradley. What's up, boys? How you guys doing? Uh, I'm doing great, man. How are you guys doing? I'm doing great, too, man. I'm just, uh, I've actually got uh, episode four just kind of playing silently on a screen in front of me, too. Nice. I, well, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> had- there's always a million things I want to remember to bring up, and it's like, okay, oh, that's that thing. Oh, wait a minute. I got to make sure we talk about that. But yeah. It's definitely a departure in tone. And last week we talked about the you know using different directors and how that may affect continuity and and all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff um chapter 4 in in a the briefest synopsis i can think of is mando and the child we now know the character's name the child or baby yeah, yoda child. or whatever you want to call him they lay low mm-hmm. on this forest planet and stumble into sort of a buddy adventure with a new character. And normally we record these right after the episode happens. So we don't see anybody else's reviews or or anything like that. We try to stay away from that, but Mm -hmm. I'm shocked at how many people hated this episode. I mean, hated it. I don't know what, yeah, I don't know what people's deal is because it's, you know, one of the, as we've talked about on the other podcasts that like all of the, the great Western tropes that they're keeping. This is totally right out of seven samurai, but it's two samurai. 
You know, it's the villagers and then there's the raiders that come in and they're like, please help us get rid of these raiders that are messing up our life. And they're like, oh, no. And then they get realized that it's probably the best thing to do. And it's, I don't I don't understand. I don't I don't get it. Uh, it's funny. You I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dan. I, I had no idea. And I'm, I'm usually pretty, pretty good about it. I have like my certain websites that I check and I always look at reviews and what they thought of a certain video game or movie or T show. I actually for you know, haven't really been doing that with the Mandalorian, so I'm surprised that this episode got so much hate. That's I, I actually really liked it. Yeah, if you go yeah. if you go on IMDb, the number of one star reviews about the it really took me off guard because I liked it. It it felt a little bit different. There are a couple of things we'll get into that feel more contemporary in terms of the choice of words and especially what Gina Carano's the way she talks has a much more modern mm-hmm. uh, cadence or rhythm yeah. to it. Um, but the one thing that has been, I've been focusing on since uh, I pay attention to music first, probably in, in these things like a weirdo, but we've got, you know, the opening scene when they go to the forest planet, you've got that sort of heroic, uh, th- the, the overarching theme that anytime the Mandalorian does something cool, you hear this huge brass fanfare. They did something mm-hmm. really clever. When you see the villagers for the first time, you have that theme, but it's played on an acoustic guitar, which I think is the first time in the entire canon that you have that instrument. Everything's normally these these big symphonic uh, yeah. sounds, yeah. you know, with the entire orchestra. Here you've got a very uh, kind of intimate one guitar playing the theme. It's the same notes. It just has a completely different feel to yeah. it. Yeah, I thought, and I thought it was great because it, it, because we've seen that before in this same kind of story because it's getting across the Mandalorian theme, but the Mandalorian is coming into this pastoral setting and it's the villagers and there's kids running around and it sets up that, Hey, there's this nice place and it's nice and tranquil, but you know, here comes the, the light motif of, or the late, how do you pronounce that? Late or light light motif of the Mandalorian (laughs) and they move it, they move it over into that. So I thought it totally worked and it, 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 I, I picked up on that as well, just as a, Hey, that's, you know, that's what, that's the kind of tone and music you usually hear when they're trying to set the scene of, of, you know, this is the nice place that's got a problem and, um, you know, our guy's going to come in and help it along. Um, on your note about hearing that kind of instrument, just to totally nerd out, there is guitar in another star Wars thing, but it's electric and it's one of my favorite things it's in uh, attack of the clones when obi-wan's hanging on to that droid flying over coruscant do you remember that part he jumps out the window i know what you're talking about i've never noticed that yeah i I do remember that part but also i'm known to take naps during that movie as well unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) the uh well the the i'll tell you what if you um if you guys since you guys are probably obviously using disney plus and if you got a nice tv with the resolution go back and revisit Attack of the Clones, especially that sequence, because now with the 4K and the high res, whatever, it's really amazing to to see the depth going on in that scene of because they really shot it well with the whole Obi Wan, like you looking down and you realize he's like three miles up in the air, 
I always love that. But anyway, but that's but soundtrack wise, that's a great piece. And when you listen to it, there's this really there's this really fun kind of gnarly electric guitar going on, but it's very it's 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 very subdued. It's not loud enough in the movie. Oh, and you just hear kind okay. of the, you just hear kind of like the the chasing tom tom drums, but there is this weird kind of Robert Frippy, you know, electric. It's it's pretty neat. So anyway. Sidebar right. nerdery off. Kids, <laughs> Robert Robert Fripp is a very uh, well regarded guitar, probably the best guitarist you've never heard of. So go right. go check any King Leader Crimson. King Crimson. Yeah. I don't know what people know. A lot of people don't know what the heck we're talking about half the time because we're all. I'm constantly reminded. Well, that we're he did. He, he he's most famously known for he's doing that long drum that long sustaining note in David Bowie's Heroes song. Yep. That just kind of sounds like a, a long violin. Ah, I, yeah. I think he's a I think he's like a uh, um, a romantic period violinist reincarnated as a rock guitarist because if you listen to his guitar, it sounds like he's trying to be a violinist with distortion. But anyway. There you go. Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> so back to our story, and we skipped ahead a little bit. I, I meant to mention, so to the point that some of the the haters or critics, whatever you want to call them, have, yeah. have about this episode, there are a few things that pop out that don't really feel it, that stick out in terms of like when Mando goes into that, that restaurant or cantina or whatever it is at the beginning, I had a very like welcome to Applebee's type moment when the server or the, the owner comes up to him. It just felt really, it just, I don't know. Weird. It just didn't ring true with the rest of the stuff yet. Yeah, felt kind of weird. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah well, yeah. she was, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Dan. No, no, no. It's all you. Go for it. I was just agreeing. Yeah. I, I know what you mean because it's like she, what you were saying about the, say the cadence of, um, Kara's speech, uh, talking like more of a normal person versus that kind of B-movie, Star Wars, um, earnest, simplified kind of language. And uh, you're right. And yet at the same time, there's this part of me that is enjoying those kinds of things because as I was watching some of uh, the episode before we got the call going, that um, one of the things that I'm enjoying about the series is how it there's there's so much balance and the thing that made me think of it was okay as we know in oh actually wrong episode i'll get to that but um things like balance like things when like when they they bring back an element of the classic trilogy that we're very familiar with but they change the dynamic of the scene and uh to not spoil anything for episode five say mando goes somewhere that we've seen in the star wars universe before but we were used to seeing certain elements going on in that in that room or that port or that hangar or whatever and now we see it in a different way and i thought that was neat that okay he goes into the village bar or restaurant and you have someone come up that seems more normal so you get this the way it's expanding the universe and that like not everyone in the star wars universe was this heroic stoic spiritually guided um you know idealist or a cynic like han solo there were all these other people in the middle that are just living on their planet 
doing their thing. You know, the, the suburbia of Star Wars. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's just like getting by, essentially. Yeah, yeah, and I and I love your Applebee's reference because she, you know, it's, it's almost like she's coming up and saying, "Well, we've got, you know, can I start you with an appetizer?" Yeah, you know, like, do, you, uh, yeah, you want, do you want some wings or do you want some uh, <laughs> jalapeno poppers yeah. or something? I I don't know, but it. Just, you want the pine or the thirty-two ounces? I always kind of enjoyed those those moments in Star Wars, though, and like to kind yeah. of touch on like in the one scene when he's like walking down the street, it almost looks like Star Wars version of Shakedown Street at a Grateful Dead show. Like they just have bunch of different stuff that they're just selling in the street oh but yeah in, yeah in terms of like how they're speaking i feel like it started with force awakens they kind of started slowly dropping that like you said b-level almost like proper way of of speaking for a more favorable straightforward english mm-hmm. and i think they're kind of even pushing that even more uh with mandalorian but i also and- like the fact that wherever he lands wherever he goes there are just different styles of them speaking and stuff like that I mean, yeah. it's clear that that George Lucas exerted pretty tight control over, you know, speech coaches and dialect and stuff like that. It, it, you know, go back to the prequels and listen to how everyone talks, and it's oh, yeah. it's slower. This it's like this slower kind of faux British accent that all of the Imperial Navy people have, and you know, in, in, uh, force or I'm sorry, uh, episode one Phantom Menace, all the people on Naboo talk like that also. Yeah. Right. And yet, and, and yet, and this is something that always bugged. I wasn't, a, I've, I've always kind of, I don't know. I understand why Phantom Menace doesn't work on many cinema technical levels and flat little moments here, but there's a lot of things that I thought that got right. But one of the things that bugs me that was totally off balance is exactly what you said is that, we have all these characters that are talking in that, like you said, the very theatrical, and yet they obviously let any intern at Industrial Light and Magic get jump in the voice booth to be a, a battle droid here or one of the Trade Federation guys here. So you've got like a you you've got like this octopus-looking character that sounds like Spicoli. You know, or um, or or, you know, or I mean, I mean, General Grievous is literally voiced by a guy that worked at Skywalker Sound. He was just one of the engineer guys and they just put his voice through thing. But it was like you just hear these voices and it's like, wait, we're supposed to be afraid of these guys. These are supposed to be the bad guys. And the battle droids are Roger, Roger. And, you know, hey, what are you doing? You know, it's like, okay, no, come on, man. And. Just there was just little the voice casting things were weird. They got all the great actors for one thing, and then for anyone in a mask, they just let anyone get their yeah yeah like, hey, you want to be in Star Wars? Great, cool. Okay, jump in the vo- jump in the vocal booth. <laughs> yeah, a lot of those so, a lot of those voices from the prequels, they were great in the Clone Wars animated series because it was yeah. they were very cartoonish. But when it came to like, right. the actual movies, it left a little bit to be desired. Definitely. So we talked about the different directors. This one, this this one being Chapter Four, directed by Bryce Dallas Howard, which was a surprising choice. And I guess just you know she's just beginning to move into that. I may be completely ignorant, but uh, no, I, you know what? I I was surprised by that too. And when I mentioned it to my wife, she was like, "Oh yeah." And I I'd heard that she was directing, but but my wife said, "Oh yeah, yeah." She's actually like she's getting kind of like a Sofia Coppola. Like she, she's not dabbling. She's actually getting known for, yeah, she's got the goods. She learned the good stuff from her dad. And 
So I think this is one of her next step, like, wow, she, she actually knows what she's doing kind of things, you know? Overall, I, I mean, I like this episode. I don't, I, you know, again, I don't know what everyone's complaining about. It was really, for me, it was reminiscent of, you know, we know that they're borrowing from Westerns and samurai movies. Mm-hmm. I think more Westerns than samurai movies on, on, on this series, personally. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And this movie really, or this movie, this episode really reminded me of Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood, yeah. which was up up until Unforgiven. I thought his best Western was, was Pale Rider. Um, you know, Stranger comes into town. Widow asks for his help. Uh, you know, there's a romantic tension that gets established almost immediately in both, both in Pale Rider and in um, uh, Chapter 4 here. And it was it was interesting to see he how he dealt with that or how the director dealt with that issue without going yeah. too far. Yeah, I thought I I thought they did a really good job of that, especially with um, yet again the uh, you know putting the directoral fingers into the spice jar and doing another sprinkle of origin story with him you know because because after it seems like every after every episode someone says okay so wait a minute is he a mandalorian or is he not now we know that he's not technically a mandalorian in terms of he was born on mandalore and grew up but they took him in which we kind of assumed by you know the way he and um uh, implied things but now we know it's like okay so yes he he obviously had an orphan thing going that's why he picked up the child and he, you know, feels for it for some reason. And now we know that he's like, yep, this is the way. So, and by the, when he said the, when he said that line to her about, you know, they took me in, they raised me, this is the way. And it, that was a neat kind of double layer. I thought of, you know, he, like you, you hear him say that and it almost had two, it, it, to me, it had two layers. Like he's saying, this is the way the Mandalorians operate. And he's also saying this is the way is kind of like, you know, the Mandalorian version of 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 uh, drawing the cross over your chest when you are thinking about your tribe or your religion or your community. You know what I mean? It had that feel. I was like, wait, wait, why? How did he say that and why? But he's also saying this is the way. This is what you do. Mandalorians are about, you know, you don't leave a kid behind or something like that. So. It, there was a there was a neat weight to that moment that I'm still kind of processing. So, no, I mean I was going to agree with what you said. One of my favorite favorite parts of the show so far, and I think it kind of cemented his. I mean, obviously, it's my favorite episode of the entire series, chapter three, I think, where he decides he says, you know, I'm pretty much like screw it, I'm going back in, I'm getting the child. Um, yeah, and one of my favorite like actual scenes of the entire series is when he's pinned down in that in that vehicle and he's holding, you know, the the child in his arm and he's just kind of staring at it and the child's staring back at him. And it's only like five seconds or so before, you mm-hmm. know, something shoots across the sky behind him. But I think at that really that part, you know, as they're peeling back the layers of humanity on this guy that's not just a Boba Fett ripoff, um, I think that was awesome. I think it really had you connect with him and show that he was, you know, actually caring for this child and want to take care of it. And that's when that's the moment where you actually actively, actively started rooting for him. Like, no, this is a good guy through and through. Um, 
And like, yeah, I think this episode just kind of immediately um, pushes that forward even more. It, what excellent, what very well said. I to, I totally know. I, I had that same reaction to it as well. That 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 little beat, you know, like yep. they didn't need to do. They didn't need to do that. You already knew he was protecting it, but just sitting on that beat and you're just staring up at this helmet, and you don't even know what the look yeah. on his face is. But the yeah. fact that he was taking that pause to be like, I'm really all in on this, aren't I? Yeah, and, yeah, and that's all there is to catches it. Him, catches himself off guard, really, and like, yeah, you know, he's at that point. He's pretty much accepting that he's going to die for this child, but he's still, you know, and and kudos to everybody involved in the show that um, the main character wears this helmet, and yet you still feel everything that he, you know, is yeah is doing and everything he's going through, and like, yeah, it's just like I said, one of it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire series so far. Yeah, Dan, we uh, Dan, uh, in the prior podcast to that point, Dan, Brian and I have talked about that a lot where we've been so impressed and marveling at how well Pedro is emoting through that costume and how yeah. much they how how much they obviously take so seriously getting the camera angle and the shot framed right so that because of the because of the contours of the helmet, depending on the way the depending on the angle of the camera to the visor and just you know the smallest tilt of the head either down and forward or down into the side or if he just kind of relaxes his shoulders and you see some space between the bottom of the helmet and his neck can relay so much emotion in like one beat or of like you know like 10 frames of film and you, you, you just somehow your brain knows what he's thinking and that takes a lot of work to to, to nail that yeah. yeah absolutely yeah i mean yeah. imagine being presented with this initial challenge if you were you know in an improv even doing something local whether it was an improv improv class or something like that where your your task is your face is going to be covered and you have to convey this that and the other thing so yeah, um, and it's going to go on for for ten hours of of story time. I assume I ho- I I kind of I like the fact that he was very stoic at the beginning, and didn't talk that much. And I obviously you can't propel a whole ten episode arc like that, but he was really chatty <laughs> in this one for some reason. Yeah, more so than in the other. Uh, the other episodes, but that's just a personal preference of mine. I, I, I think of that as kind of like the effect of taking care of the kid and the, that, that, that maybe take that taking care of the kid is at, it's doing two things. It's reminding him of what he went through. And then also at the same time, empowering him and giving him maybe this sense of purpose beyond just being a, a bounty hunter, you know, like just, I'm just going around trying to do enough things to, to have enough money to get to the next thing. And, and us at the same time, now that we know that he was taken in by the Mandalorians, maybe that's helping him feel like he's even more of a true Mandalorian because he's actually, now he's actually getting his chance to fulfill the whole point of this is the way, you know? Yeah, especially and especially there was probably a great and 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 to to that scene you were talking about, Dan, 
where like you know so, you know and then the, the 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 thing goes across the sky and then you realize it's a jetpack and then the mandalorian cavalry comes in and then the big guy who is john favreau with the the sweet ass you know bays malvis gun comes yeah. in and they're just like you know what we you know we had our little we had our little uh, tussle back at the coven but you know what you're doing the right thing and this is the right thing and that's all that's behind us we're here and this is the whole point and you're just like oh hell yeah you know they're all buddies again and and then it, it fortifies that whole mandalorian ethos you know yeah Absolutely. A lot of goose, a lot of uh, Star Wars, a lot, a lot of like you know, twelve-year-old goosebump moments in that episode. You're just like, a that is the coolest thing I might have seen in a long time, you know. And then, but b, but there, but the 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 whole melodramatic point of it, you know, like w- why did they come in? And you know, it was awesome the way they came in, and also it's awesome why they came in. You yeah. Know? One thing that Favreau has done a very good job of, and all the writers, I think, on this, is making the motivations for why things happen ambiguous. So, like in the in the, you know, in the original trilogy, everything was black and white: good guys are good guys, bad guys are bad guys. Sith quest for power, Jedi's fight the bad guys because that's what they're built to do, and there's no there's no real ambiguity about why things are happening. However, in this series there there's, you know, obviously the lead character, the hero starts out, you know, tearing up a bar and shooting people and throwing that guy in the carbon freezing chamber on his ship. No, without any hesitation. Then we start to wonder, is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? He's exhibiting traits of, of both. But to your point, David, about when the cavalry comes in, why are they coming in? Are they coming in to protect him or are they coming in to protect the child? Are they valid? Like, I'm not sure if they're validating his choice of what to do or if they're just protecting, you know, protecting one of their own, but there are a lot I, of, I right. think it is they're, they're protecting one of their own and no matter what they have his back pretty much. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of moments like that that I think might be open a bit to interpretation but I could be yeah. wrong. I don't know. But that's the good. That's I think that's why this is such a strong um, piece of work across the board where you have 15 year old kids watching it. You've got Generation Xers and, and everybody else watching this and all digging on the same thing, even though there's lots of different demographics that have to be served by yeah. the way they've put this together. I've I've thought about that aspect like when I've watched it and I you know when I have that and I'm sure you guys have done it too where you're just you know there's a moment of just well there's always there's always the they're always doing it but there's always a couple of stand like when the cavalry comes in there's these moments where your brain just goes damn they did that well like you know from all angles you know and 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 you're thinking about they sat in the writer's room and they said, okay, and then the Calvary's going to come in. And then someone says, okay, well, why are they coming in? What To Dan's point, why are they doing this? And it's almost like they have maybe – sometimes I daydream that do, do they have like multiple levels of, um, of um, uh, quality control in the sense of, okay, this whole sequence, how is this going to serve and appease the um, Generation X – hardcore 
cynics. How is this now? How is this going to serve their wives who are just kind of watching it casually? And then is this going to serve the 12 year olds that are and the 10 year olds that are going to watch this? Are they going to, you know, if if we keep this cryptic, are the kids going to understand it? Are we giving them just enough thematic depth in a way that the, that, that, that kids will just get it. You know, they, they get what's going on the way we did with Star Wars when we saw it when it was seven. And at the same time, is it satisfying the intellect of us grown generation Xers who have seen a million movies and the Pale Riders and all this other stuff and know what good writing should be when it comes to, you know, plot and narrative and plot holes? Because, I mean, as we all know, all the hate that came out about Rogue One, about the master control switch on the beach, that, you know, everyone loved the movie, but they're like, what is that? You know, like, oh, come on, man, it's Star Wars, you know? It's yeah. Like, there's a stupid reason for it because they never thought that anyone would be on that beach, so why not leave it out there, <laughs> you know? But anyway. Yeah, so, you know, I think it's a really good point you make, too. I think everybody, every Star Wars project has to, that weird tight line of, of trying to appease to all these audiences. I mean, now more than ever with, with Marvel and with Star Wars and all the history and all the fans, <clears throat> especially with Star Wars too, because it rains. And the message the boards and chat rooms. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just a matter of having to, you know, walk that weird line of, you know, appeasing and making people happy who grew up on this back in the 70s and 80s and also applying new fans and even the younger fans of the prequel that were kids and that came out and, you know, trying to appease and do a quality work that is broad enough for all of these fans to get involved and invested while also putting up a quality product. And I think it speaks volumes to the creators of The Mandalorian and John Favreau and everybody involved that if you watch it, you're right. You're exactly right. I mean, you can, you know, my wife had no interest in watching it and then she saw Baby Yoda and now she's hooked. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, even the hard cynic friends of mine who are hardcore star Wars and, um, you know, they love it. They love the action. They love the underbelly that they're showing. And now I even have my nieces and nephews are really into it a, because of the action. And, you know, I think they're just doing a phenomenal job of, of being able to walk that line and not alienate any certain fan base. Yeah. Well said. It's almost an impossible task. It really is. No, it really is. Yeah, I mean, especially nowadays with the, like you said, the message boards. and I mean, you know, you go on Facebook and you can just start, you know, any kind of thread and be like, you know, it's it's just really easy to hate on anything these days. So, and especially Star Wars, you know, they hear about George Lucas sneezing the wrong way and there's <laughs> a 10-page post oh, about yeah. how he's destroying the world. Oh yeah, when they released that picture a couple weeks ago, where they where you where George was on the set sitting with Favreau and Filoni, everyone was like, "Oh no, what, why, why did, whoa, now he's going to ruin it." They brought him in, and um, and Dan, Brian, and I have talked about this on the past ones. Is that and Dan? So did you did you watch all the Clone Wars and the Rebels and all that stuff? I did. I'm actually, not, I'm actually catching up on Rebels now, but I I did watch pretty much all Clone Wars and everything else. Awesome, yeah, dude. Rebel Rebels gets really really awesome i don't know how far you are but but stick with it and it they they get into some really great tie-ins and as it goes on it gets more into satisfying like some deep core gen x you know star wars people it gets really awesome um, yeah you, you'll see and um 
but uh, to that point, so you know, so the, the, the thing the thing is, is that the, the people running it, that the two main guys, it's Favreau and Dave Filoni, who has been the showrunner of all those animated. So you've got, right. you know, so, I mean, you th- th- that brain trust of how to make a real, how to make a movie, how to make a awesome movie. And then you got Filoni who knows how to do it in 40 minutes. And he is, he knows all the Star Wars lore. And Favreau is a total fan. Like, I mean, they're just knocking it out of the park. They, you, it, it must someday we got to find an interview where we find out when those two hung out. They must have just gotten along so instantly. Like, yes, we have to do this, dude. Yeah, you know, it's just so obvious they are on the same page. It's about how it needs to be done. It's so great. So wrapping this one up. What did we think? We we really haven't talked about Gina Carano's performance yet. She obviously brings a lot of physicality to to the series. The fight scenes were, I mean, the fist fighting scenes were were really good and much different than what we've seen previously. Thoughts? Uh, she was okay. I mean, she plays you know, it's Gina Carano. I feel like I, when I see her, I'm like, oh, okay, it's Gina Carano, and she just kind of. I mean, I kind of willing to give her, cut her some slack. In terms, like we were talking about dialogue earlier, and dialects and how people speak. You know, she's an ex-soldier. I think she's an. They ever allude that she's an ex-rebel, or they ever say that? Or yes, she's an ex-soldier. Yeah, well, right. Yeah. Well, that yeah, that was one of the neat things I, w- I was actually going to mention. Uh, I'll I'll try to be really quick about it. But when 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 Brian, when you were mentioning how there was seems to be a lot of hate for this episode, one of the things that I really liked, and maybe they could have done a better job during that scene but when she's sitting in the app in the um <laughs> in the applebee's with mando and they're catching up the space she gives him a lot of she gives him a she gives him a um um she it's kind of more like a joe's crab shack because it's kind of all wood and stuff like that um the uh space crabs but not as loud um god those places are so loud but anyway um, when when she's sitting there, I had to rewind it a couple times to figure out what she said because she gives him a lot of information about she was at Endor, right. and he references her as a shock trooper. So apparently she was like one of the commando rebel shock troopers, and she gives this very quick speech, but it's not like she kind of says it fast and it, it it goes by quick. But she was at Endor, and she's like after Endor. We got sent out to just do odd jobs to clean up and go find cells of the Imperials and basically take them off, take them out off the books. And so she gives this little this little catch up story that essentially verifies that she was quite a badass, you know, like she did some dirty work on behalf. Like she went and found the rest of the Imperials and took them out without any PR about it. And now she, and then just kind of got left. And then she said something at that point about, you know, he's like, well, how did you get to this point? And she's like, well, that's kind of another story, I think. So maybe they'll revisit her and we find out that she was doing that stuff. And then maybe the rebellion or the Republic said, okay, thanks for your service. But like Vietnam, now we're, now we're going to kind of shun you. I don't know. But, uh, so, yeah. yeah, but then, um, but, but then moving on to the ep- – I know we're wrapping up this episode, but uh, the final battle where they teach the villagers stuff, one of the things I really liked that I was thinking about for the podcast was how they played up the scout walker and you know putting the, uh, you know, the college party red light bulbs inside the cockpit to give that monster element like it's got yeah. eyes. And, and then also we talk about how they, use, they, they pull from different movie tropes and genre tropes. Like 
they you get to the thing I really liked about it is when the villagers were waiting and then they're looking at the dark forest and you hear the sound and you don't know what's coming. And then suddenly you see those red eyes come through the forest. That was like a total King Kong thing. Yeah, that, it, it, that's the same kind of vibe. And it's like, oh, they're, they're keeping that kind of simple, effectual, like tension and paranoia. And then, oh, here it comes. And then you kind of see it. And then, boom, there it is. And it's such a simple idea. Yeah, it definitely felt more like a monster movie or almost like Jurassic Park in a way when they're running. Yeah, there was something about the there was something about the way they shot that that was totally different than Return of the Jedi when we saw those machines first. But it, you know, the cannon fire, the the footsteps, it all felt super familiar with when we have seen those. Uh, walkers in 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 other you know in other movies or or what have you um oh yeah but yeah it 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 for some reason i it felt like jurassic park to me for a second which yeah i got the t-rex vibe from it yeah exactly right and how did that thing even get there is a good question because it couldn't it's you know it it had to have been flown there by Unless people are just buying assets off of the Empire, or there's got to be like tons of hardware laying around, like after every every army folds, right? There's tanks and stuff laying around that people get their hands on. But it's there's a lot of unanswered questions about uh, about why that is there. And to your point in a in a past podcast, that's one of the things that we've enjoyed the whole that they're not over explaining every little thing. It's just there's just stuff that is going on. And occurs because it does, and we don't need to know all of the whys, and that's what kind of made Star Wars cool. You know, yeah. it's just this is just what's it's it it, it 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 just it is what it is, and it's kind of cool to wonder about it. <laughs> Side note on that, I was in the store the other day, and I actually they actually have a Lego of that Scout Walker with a little Mandalorian, a little Kara, and um, two of the um, Raider guys. And uh, so it's it's time to order for my son for Christmas. It's going to blow his mind. No, that's awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. They keep selling out. I was in the Lego store yesterday at this other mall, and I asked a guy about it. He goes, yeah, we keep selling out of those. Because the, the thing is that it doesn't say Mandalorian on it anywhere. It just says it underneath the picture of his figure. So I don't. it's, it's, it's weird, man. They're putting toys out without, like, screaming, hey, this is a Mandalorian thing. And uh, people are finding out about it. And he's like, yeah, they keep selling out. We have to keep bringing in more so um pretty neat it's uh there was a yeah. there was a bunch of merch that that all of a sudden appeared online yesterday and they're handling oh, really? the strategy seems definitely different than in years past or with 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 other films where you know there's this big rollout of all this retail uh stuff and but they're not doing it's almost like by stealth you don't even know it's happening because they know people yeah. are going to share it and I, you know, you almost don't want to have anything spoiled for you for episode nine by seeing stuff that's, you know, on the shelves already. So true. It's I don't yeah, know. It's I, a very I, weird place we're in in terms of social media and, and the way people blast everything all around. Yeah, yeah I saw. I, I Oh, go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Well, I was going to say they did the same thing with Avengers, too. They released a bunch of like play sets super early and I got leaked out. Um, because people are maniacs, and one one of them was like the Hulk, and like and Tony Stark's 
house with all the different uh, suits, Tony, you know, Iron Man suits. And then it came out, it was like, it had nothing to do with the movie, obviously. And it turns out that a lot of these toy companies, they make all these toys, make all these toy sets, you know, well before the movie, TV shows, whatever, are made or even finished. So they don't even really know. They just know the characters are tied in. They don't, they don't that's about it. You know what I mean? They don't right. really know what else is going on. Yeah, the timeline to get these things produced in in enough quantities so that they're not, you know, losing money um, is lengthy. And all of the trade, not just not to go into the legal stuff, but all of this stuff gets trademarked in advance. So they're, you know, the, the planning cycle for that aspect of the business is probably pretty fascinating. I would like to be able to lift the hood of that a little bit and see more, but uh, there's no way that will ever happen. So, so wrapping this one up, we didn't, we didn't really talk about the end scene because, uh, because we haven't talked about it. So (laughs) going back, going back to the Western thing, there's a very cowboy like moment where uh, Cara Dune and Mandalorian are sitting on the porch, kind of looking at the sunset and and watching you know watching the village villagers kind of do their thing and the kids are playing and it looks it just so looked like a cowboy movie right there you know they you know got their feet crossed on the porch and kicking back yeah. and and he's you know. and 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 mando's totally he, he's standing against the doorway with the literal cowboy um uh, dance, there's a yeah. this this dance you know one leg crossed over the other hands folded in front of him it just you know all you needed was like a piece of wheat sticking out of his mouth or his helmet you know <laughs> and they're they're just and then you realize they they start talking and then you realize they've actually been there for a couple of weeks so they've actually been decompressing for a while and chilling out and um and then she talks to him about you know well obviously that woman likes you and obviously you could use this kind of decompression and chilling don't you want to get off the road and hang out here and then we, you know, then we get to, and then, you know, and then the, the, the widow asks him and, you know, he, and, and then it, we, we learned, he, he's like, look, I'm going to leave the kid here. This is better. And then when you say that, when you say, can. wait, when, so when you say the widow asks him, what did, what does she ask him? Oh, well, she just said, you know, he says he's going to leave the kid there. And she says, why don't you stay too? You know, and, and it's, it's, you know, we would love to have you here. And he, and then he says, he, he shares with her, he's like, I, I just don't belong here, even though there is another one of those great pregnant pauses where you seem to think that he's kind of considering it because she actually, you know, puts her hands on the helmet and starts to push up on it. And he doesn't and, stop. You know, nor, right, and he doesn't stop. He doesn't right stop away. right at first. Yeah, yeah. It gets pretty far, actually. I was surprised. I was like, oh, and, you know, farther than I thought it was going. Mm-hmm. So we know the bold prediction or not so bold prediction. We're going to see it come off eventually. I I think I don't, I don't, I'd be shocked if we didn't with the way everyone needs a resolution, although they're shooting season two now. So maybe it's not in the next couple of chapters, but at some point I suspect we will see that. So I don't, I don't want them to, I want them to do judge dread style where the helmet just never comes off. Yeah, not Judge Dredd's Stallone version. I'm talking Judge Dredd, the comics and the recent movie. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> it's hard to I've believe a, Stallone a, made. You know, you look at the state of comic book movies now. It's hard to believe rewinding that that there was a Stallone vehicle that that Judge Dredd was once upon a time looked on as a, a, a Sylvester Stallone vehicle. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's amazing. Wasn't that the one with Wesley Snipes? Or no, that was Demolition Man. That was Demolition Man. Yeah, yeah. I believe Rob Schneider is in this Judge Dredd version. <laughs> that's how you know it's quality stuff. Actually, my ring my ringtone for the longest time was. Uh, Sylvester Stallone just yelling, I am all over and over and over again. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, so, Dan, this, I got to send you a link to this. You probably already know about it, but I, I'll, I, when we get off the thing, I got to send you a link to this clip of Stallone sounds. <laughs> Sold. But, but I think, but to the point about um, Mando taking the helmet off, I think with the with the um, excellent taste and reverence that Favreau and Filoni have have shown so far, I think we're going to get some really fun, um, like, sneak peeks or almost sees, like, say, when when we saw um, the back of Vader's head in Empire and his little chamber was putting his helmet back on and then suddenly you saw that scarred-up bald head. Like, we'll, we'll see something that people are going to be freeze-framing their DVRs, you know, like, yeah. say, the back of Mando's head or or just like literally one frame of profile in a dark room. So you kind of see a chin or a cheekbone and then you're like, whoa, you know, but then maybe we'll also, maybe there'll be a scar. Maybe there'll be some kind of weird thing going on face wise yeah. because, you know, I, I, know. I, I, I trust that they'll do something cool like that because they also know that like, you know, don't let Sam and Diane hook up too soon or you lose the tension. That's a cheer, so, that's a Cheers it, reference, guys. Yeah. Look, look it up. <laughs> Sam and Diane. Good lord, you're going way back for that one. Yeah. What would be the equivalent? What would what's what's the latest jump the shark culturally? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't even tell. Yeah. You. Jim and Pam from The Office, maybe. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. And even that's ten years old or more. It's it's yeah. man, time's flying. That's it's that's a story for another time. So, that is. Um, Dan. So how how do people find you if they want? If so, Dan. You know, Dan does stand up in the Philly area. And uh, Dan, how do we find out about those? How do we get you? Uh, I mean, I have a uh, page on on the Facebook, as they say. Um, it's machine. actually connected to my regular uh, Facebook page that you can connect it up trying to get better at posting uh, dates and times of when I'm performing. Um, and then also on my Instagram, which is uh, at real Danzy Dans, uh, but uh, it's uh, D-A-N-Z-Y. I was going to say, is it with a Z? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, link to, yeah. we'll link to both in the show notes so it's a little bit easier for people to uh, yeah. to navigate. It's very edgy of me, that name that I chose. Um, it's not, it's not Danzy? Page. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> And I post, you know, random humorous videos as well. So that's about it. There you go. All right, gang. Well, that's all we've got for this one. Everybody be cool, and we will talk to you soon. Be good. Thanks for listening to Creator Confidential. To get future episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or follow the show on SoundCloud. For updates about future podcast episodes, essays, or live events, 
just text the word CREATOR to 66866. That's CREATOR to 66866. You can also visit us on the web, Twitter, or Facebook. Creator Confidential is a production of Force 10 Media and the Tuck Law Office.